Hey everyone, thanks for listening in, really appreciate it. Wanted to let you know about a really cool opportunity. Over the last few months, we've been working with an amazing company, Create Momentum. They work in the peak performance adventure space and together we are taking a small group of people to Thailand to challenge themselves, train in flow states, and learn how to find balance in extreme conditions. Sarah Thompson, our own Wells Performance Head of Coaching, is going to be guiding the eight-day experience. Now, we have carefully chosen two specific action sports, freediving and Muay Thai. And what we're using those sports for is to help you implement strategies used by elite athletes, then to translate those learnings into personal and professional growth while you're at the event, obviously, and then afterwards, We'll talk a lot about how to implement those learnings in your day-to-day life. So if you want to level up, check it out. We'd be honored and privileged to have you there. The dates are December 3rd to 11th, and the resort is absolutely out of control. Um, We're really, really excited about it. The training is totally personalized to your level of experience as well. So all levels are welcome, even if you have never tried either of those sports. And let's face it, we haven't. Uh, so we, we really don't care where the skill level is. We're just learning. We're just trying to get better and have a really cool experience. If you're interested, check out all, out all the details at cre- createmomentum.co. And the link is in the podcast description. There's a few spots left. And we would love to have a few people from the podcast join us on that trip. All right, let's get back to the show. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining me on my podcast where every week I do my very best to try to bring you the information that will make a difference for your ability to perform at a higher level and to get crazy healthy. One of the interviews that I did on my original podcast that got an enormous amount of traction and comments and uh, opinions shared was my interview with Ben Greenfield. And so I'm bringing that to this show just because the listenership has changed so much since uh, a couple of years ago when I first did this interview. But uh, I think that this is an important one just because Ben and I dig into so many granular details around nutrition and training and specifically around, believe it or not, microdosing. And that's become a topic that has uh, become quite popular lately is the use of psychedelic drugs uh, for the treatment of depression and other conditions has really exploded. I thought that given the relevance right now, that this would be uh, something that would be important to bring back. So a little bit about Ben. Ben is a coach, nutritionist, author, speaker, ex-bodybuilder, Ironman triathlete, and Spartan racer with over a decade of experience using cutting edge and proven scientific concepts to achieve healthy and lasting performance and lifestyle success. He works with athletes, CEOs, and soccer moms alike, helping them to achieve amazing feats of physical endurance without destroying their bodies in the process. In 2008, national, the National Strength and Conditioning Association voted Ben America's top personal trainer. And in 2013, Ben was named as the top 100 most influential people in health. He holds a master's degree in exercise physiology and biomechanics from the University of Idaho, He's a certified sports nutritionist and a certified strength and conditioning coach. He teaches athletes from all sports how to be healthy on the inside and the outside and 
coaches people of all ages and background on performance, fat loss, nutrition, lifestyle management, and wellness. You can check him out at bengreenfieldfitness.com. So without any further delays, please enjoy my conversation, in-depth conversation with Ben Greenfield. Ben, thanks for joining right. me. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be here. And not uh, not outside on the in the frigid tundra that is uh, that is Spokane, Washington, right now. It's nice to be indoors podcasting. I must admit. Nice, yeah. I'm uh, I'm doing this one from sunny Nicaragua, and it is like 30 degrees, and my family's out surfing right now. So, um, but I am flying uh, home to. Screw you. <laughs> you know what? I I say that, but I just I I like the snow. I like snowboarding. I honestly like. I was out there in my bare feet this morning walking through the snow which I do each morning just to kind of you know I start the day by eating the frog right I walk through the snow I jump in the cold pool I walk back in through the snow it's just it's a great you know who needs a cup of coffee when you have that uh but at the same time I live on a north facing slope out in the middle of the forest so I've got my I've got my light between about 10 and 2 so I pretty much have to pull out all the stops to uh, to stave off, you know, seasonal affective disorder and and cabin fever and all that good stuff. So, um, so yeah, the the winters here can be tough, but at the same time, I don't want to give people the impression that I don't like snow or that I eschew ever being cold. Yeah, that's pretty. That's I, I've gotten that from some of the videos that I've seen. So can we just start with that morning? cold plunge routines i've seen some of, of your videos on that and it's probably not the way a lot of people would ever consider starting their day but uh, i'd love to just get your take on how you start your day well i start my day in many ways and, I, and honestly you know i'm on i live on an airplane half the time and i'm traveling half the time sometimes the schedule gets thrown to whack but i mean i try i try and maintain some semblance of my at-home morning routine even when I'm traveling, you know, so, so for example, you can always hunt down like a, a cold shower in a hotel. You can always look up uh, local spas that have like cold pools and hot baths and saunas. That's one of my favorite things to do when I, when I travel extensively is I just kind of push the reboot button by going to one of these places and I'll do like, you know, 15 minutes of sauna, five minutes of cold, you know, three times through for a good little hour long routine. But the reason I like to start off my day like that is because when we look at things like nitric oxide release, we look at the expression of specific proteins that make your cells more resilient or long living, such as cold shock protein or heat shock protein. Uh, we see upregulation of, of enzymes responsible for not only burning fat, but converting adipose tissue, which can be kind of inflammatory when it's present in high amounts, uh, converting that into brown adipose tissue, something that it's very difficult to do unless you're actually uh, exposed to cold. Uh, and, and brown adipose tissue is highly metabolically active. It's a very good sort of fat tissue to have around. So, you know, people who are familiar with the benefits of cold, I realize I'm, I'm, uh, I'm preaching to the choir at them, but ultimately the, the reason for this uh, or, or, the, or, or the reasons I just stated are why I'll often start my day with not just cold, but also heat. Because when we look at heat, we see an effect on growth hormone, muscle mass maintenance, cardiovascular blood flow, again, nitric oxide, uh, erythropoietin, which, you know, Tour de France riders freaking, you know, dope with. You can actually make the same thing with, with you know, getting nice and hot in a sauna. So, um, so typically most mornings, honestly, dude, I don't get out of bed and do like a CrossFit wad or, 
or, you know, even swinging the kettlebell. Like I save all of, all of the intense stuff until later. Why? Because that's when grip strength peaks. That's when reaction time peaks. That's when, uh, um, post-workout recovery or what's called post-workout protein synthesis peaks. Um, we see a peak of testosterone again up around that time. We even see better sleep cycles when high intensity exercise is saved for the afternoon or the early evening, assuming you finish it up within three hours before bedtime compared to morning exercise. And then on the flip side, we see that morning aerobic exercise or morning easy exercise is actually, uh, also beneficial for sleep cycles. So in an ideal scenario, you've got something easy going on in the morning, something harder in the afternoon or the evening with all the hard stuff finished up by about three hours prior to bedtime. And so that's why in the morning I don't do anything that I would consider to be hard uh, from like a like a physical like VO2 max or muscle contraction standpoint. Instead, uh, typically it's sweating in the in the sauna. I have one of these infrared saunas uh, made by a company called Clearlight, so it's big enough for me to like get inside and do like you know yoga and breath work and stretching. And I'll spend 20 to 30 minutes in there. And this is just, you know, fasted after I've had my morning cup of coffee, uh, which incidentally can actually accelerate the rate at which you burn the fatty acids, having caffeine, like from coffee or green tea in your system. And then I will, uh, I'll finish up with like a cold plunge, right? I'll get in the cold pool, you know, after I walk through the snow, if it's winter and, and swim around for about five minutes or so, and then get out, um, dry myself off, uh, and go inside and, and proceed to, to make a little breakfast and, and get ready for the day. So ultimately that, that's, that's kind of how I, how I stack things. And, um, there are other things I do in the morning. You know, I have a gratitude practice where I do gratitude journaling before I even get out of bed. Um, you know, I, I do a little bit of Tai Chi and kind of like breath work while the water's on for the coffee uh, you know, say hello to my kids and my wife. I, a lot of people think this is dumb, but I, I hang upside down like a bat most mornings when I first get out of bed, I have like a little inversion swing and I just hang from it because after you've been lying in bed for like seven or eight hours, it actually feels really good to kind of like get all the blood kind of drained out of the legs and up into the head. And, and, uh, it's actually kind of a cool way to start your day. If you've never tried, you know, even if you don't have an inversion table or an, I, I have like a yoga swing that I can swing from. So it's almost like kind of, therapeutic it, it just feels really nice but i mean you know you can do like a headstand and stand against the door or, you know just put your feet up against the wall but but I'm a, I'm a big fan of that too so uh so ultimately yeah my day starts off with easy stuff a little bit of hot a little bit of cold some breath work some woo woo stuff like gratitude journaling and then uh, i save all my hard stuff for later on in the day uh, one other thing I should throw in there is that the cool thing about saving all of your hard exercise to later on in the day is that um, there's a lot of really good research behind uh, saving the majority of your carbohydrates uh, until the end of the day and the beneficial impact of that on everything from sleep cycles to insulin sensitivity um, to deep sleep and sleep latency to like a release of tryptophan and serotonin and ultimately you sleep better you recover better, uh, you have better blood glucose regulation, and a whole host of effects when you save the majority of your carbohydrates uh, until the end of the day. And I really don't eat many starches or sugars or, you know, uh, anything like that, you know, like sweet potatoes, yams, uh, rice, anything I save until the end of the day. And up until that point, I eat really like kind of high fat, 
a lot of plants, moderated carb intake. And when you're doing your hard exercise later in the day, like I just alluded to, it actually causes your body to soak up, you know, causes your muscles to soak up more of those carbohydrates in the form of glycogen, same for your liver. And so you see a far, far less pronounced blood sugar response uh, when you consume that carbohydrate rich meal. So it just kind of like sets up the whole day um, from a metabolic standpoint to be really favorable for most human bodies. When we get up, we do some kind of easy, you know, you know, cold, hot yoga, easy walk in the sunshine, whatever in the morning, something hard in the afternoon, or early evening, uh, have a lot of carbohydrates uh, in the evening and not many the rest of the day. And then kind of like, you know, fast for the night and get up, have a little caffeine and, and rinse, wash and repeat. That's really interesting. There's so many things you got into in that, that we could break down and explore. But it's funny that you bring up and call it woo-woo, this, this gratitude journaling thing. The pr previous episode I just posted on this podcast was all about the science of gratitude. Oh, no kidding. And uh, yeah, it's because there's just so much research coming out on that right now. And it's been one of the things that I've seen over and over and over again with elite performers this year is some sort of gratitude uh, journaling practice. Most of them actually do it at night. It's interesting you do it first thing in the morning. Yeah, that's, well, there's a few reasons. I, so I read a book a day and I, I typically save the nighttime for my reading. At the same time, in the morning when I get up, I like to kind of like read something spiritual or devotional or scriptural. And I keep a gratitude journal by my bedside. And my gratitude journal has three questions that I reply to in it. What am I grateful for, obviously? But then also... Um, rather than a daily affirmation, which I found that a lot of these gratitude journals have, like, you know, me, 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 I, 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 what am I going to accomplish today? You know, what's great about me? I'm good. I'm great. I'm wonderful. And gosh, darn it. People like me. Um, instead it's uh, who can I serve or pray for today? Right. So, so every single day of the year, I've got one person that I'm going out of my way to be empathetic towards or to serve, or, you know, could just be calling up my brother on the phone could be, you know, going to, to play music at the local nursing home could be just like saying a quick prayer for my mom. Um, and then the other question that I reply to in the journal is what truth did I discover? Because I find that when I wake up in the morning, I tend to just like skim through my morning reading unless I read with the realization that I'm going to be answering a question afterwards about one truth that I discovered in that reading. So I read with intention and mindfulness. And by starting off my day like that, I find it, it kind of sets a standard for the rest of the day in terms of identifying other things that you might be grateful for, kind of brings a smile to your face, um, allows you to go out of your way to help somebody that day. Whereas if you saved it till the evening, you wouldn't be able to. Uh, and then also I just freaking like always have some kind of other like book project I'm, I'm immersed in later on in the day anyways, if it's, if I save it till the evening. How do you spark creativity? Because I noticed this year that you were doing some work on actually writing fiction and you've previously written Beyond Training, which was a really interesting and very scientific book on, on training based off of what you've done previously in, in triathlon, all your exercise phys work. And that's my background too, as an exercise physiologist. So I was like all over that, but um, I've been fascinated to, to watch your sort of evolution into also doing these more creative uh, pursuits, like, like writing fiction or writing children's books or, or going in a, in a very different direction. So how did that all emerge? And is there anything that you do to, to spark that or to create your, uh, to improve your ability to do these cognitive tasks during the day? 
Well, first of all, you know, I I know this might sound like a cop-out answer, but writing is a muscle. And I've been writing since I was six years old. So writing just flows from me. Uh, My curriculum when I was a child, I was homeschooled K through 12. It was very writing and reading intensive. Uh, My mother was my primary teacher, and she was not a big science or math teacher. So I really didn't develop a passion for either of those subjects until I was in college when I had some good teachers who actually had a passion for those subjects and, and fueled inside me that same passion, uh, you know, where I, where I found, you know, like, like, you know, I remember my very first math, my very first math teacher in college up until that point, I hated math, but they all of a sudden like had all these equations that had to do with finances and money and savings. And I was already at the time, very entrepreneurial and really trying to build up my, my legacy from a financial standpoint. So things started to click right away, right? As soon as, as soon as I was able to, to really use math in more of a financial way. And I, I discovered a lot of other cool ways to use math once I got into physics and biomechanics and some of those areas that I delved into and studied from an exercise science standpoint. Same with exercise science, right? Like I didn't like science until I found out how applicable it is to human physiology and also how applicable it is to human health and movement and nutrition. And so, you know, I wound up getting my, my master's degree in biomechanics and physiology uh, after really entering college as more of like a, like someone you'd expect to be like a novelist or, or an artist, right? Like I was into watercolor painting and I was into, you know, I was into fiction and I, I read a copious amount like I still do. So part of it was just, you know, nurture, and uh, uh, then, you know, when it, when it comes to creativity, there are a couple other things that I would throw out there. One more of like a, a biohack, I suppose, and one more of a life rule. Uh, the first, the life rule would be, it's very difficult to be creative when you're being reactive. Meaning, if I delve into emails and I am responding to other people's requests, and I am constantly working in my business rather than on a project or or on my business, and if I am constantly replying to push notifications, it's very difficult to get into uh, what I believe its author, uh, Cal Newport, Cal Newport, I think wrote the book Deep Work, but it's very difficult to get into a habit of deep work if you're constantly tugged this way and that. And so when I do something like sit down to work on fiction, or lately I've been beginning to to put out watercolor paintings. I just just put a, a photo of my recent watercolor over on my, on my Instagram page. I block out everything right? There's no push notifications. There's no emails for my fiction. I'll write first thing in the morning before I've actually checked the email inbox. Um, so again, I'm not putting out little fires and it sounds dumb and it sounds obvious, but honestly, just like cutting off the world's access to you when it's time to be in a creative place and even having a place that you escape, right? Like my office is my sacred place. Nothing goes on in there except for deep work, right? So it's not a place I really even go much to reply to emails or to like do little phone calls here. And that's pretty much like podcasting, writing articles and doing creative work. That That's, that's my office place. That's my sacred place. In the same way that like when I want to work on my music, there's one place up by the fireplace in the living room where I work on my music, right? So having like a, a set and setting for your creative work and blocking everything else 
out when it's time to delve into that work. So again, when I'm on my guitar, if I'm pulling up a tab on my iPhone, I've got do not disturb mode on, right? And ideally I've already got that tab pulled up on my computer or then my computer's unplugged so that there's no internet available when I'm looking at something on a screen to access a, a tab on my guitar, for example. Um, and so uh, I also said that in addition to, you know, that idea of being, being creative in a situation where you've cut off the ability to be, to be reactive um, from a biohacking standpoint, um, you know, I, I, a lot of times will do more creative work on the weekends uh, and, and kind of, kind of shove a lot of it into the weekends, like Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, you know, as a nutritionist and as someone who, who kind of uh, guinea pigs a bit with my body, I've found that both uh, microdosing with uh, shrooms and to even a greater extent microdosing with LSD, both of those um, seem to do a pretty good job. And this is what research seems to indicate too, with both psilocybin and LSD merging left and right hemispheres of the brain, allowing for kind of that blending of, of creativity uh, with enough of an analytic willpower left to where you're still able to, you know, as I do, weave in things like science and fitness and health and into the fiction, for example. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do kind of like the, the modern day nootropics a little bit too, especially on the weekends. Um, or, you know, if I'm in a sleep deprived state and I need to be creative and should you issue using, you know, substances that people might frown upon, you know, there are, there are other things out there. Like there's another, another pretty good nootropic called qualia that I like. It's a blend of about 42 different ingredients that kind of help to spark brain power. And, you know, I, I will certainly not deny that it's possible to pull quite a bit of creativity out of the brain without the use of any exogenous substances. But when we look at, you know, everything from great philosophers to great writers, I mean, really most of them, they, let's not deny it. They freaking use substances, right? Like I had this interview with, uh, with uh, Dr. Chopra's brother. Um, what's his name? Uh, Sanjeev, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra, I think Dr. Deepak Chopra's brother, where he gets into how like, you know, Voltaire would have like 60 cups of coffee a day, you know, to, to fuel his, his philosophical writings. And so, you know, I certainly don't deny the power of exogenous chemical compounds when, when you need to grasp at some creativity as well. So there you have it. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. The number of people that I've spoken to that have been uh, talking about the micro dosing of LSD and psilocybin, uh, especially in the Silicon Valley world that, uh, but like micro dosing. So it's not like people would traditionally think of using those substances and how that seems to be related to sparking creativity. So you're not, uh, you're not out, out there, uh, certainly in good company on talking about, about that. Uh, I'd love to get a little bit more into the exercise piece of the puzzle because you've got such a great background in that and I think a lot of people are confused about what to do and how to do it well and there's so many benefits now and I loved your idea of doing cardio in the morning and and more intense work in the afternoon and lining that up to circadian rhythms uh, can you go into that a little bit more just the people because it's the new year it's, it's gonna be one of the first interviews that I published in 2018 and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about getting fitter this year and getting faster this year and getting healthier this year. And I'm just wondering if there's uh, anything that you can give us to give us more uh, understanding of, of what types of exercise work best in, in different times of the day. 
Well, what I already kind of spelled out is the basics, right? Easy exercise in the beginning of the day seems to be more favorable for fat loss and also for circadian rhythm and for sleep later on in the day, especially if that movement early on in the day uh, exposes you to some form of natural light or copious amounts of blue light. And so often if it's dark and dreary outside uh, and I'm not exercising outdoors for that morning session, I will do things like wear glasses such as there's a, there's a company called Retimer that makes glasses that you can wear that produce blue light. Or I will turn the blue lights on in the sauna that I use because it has a setting on the sauna where on the top you can just have like a blue light wave spectrum blasting your body. Uh, I will wear these little in earbuds that produce like a calibrated white light that interacts with uh, photoreceptors on the surface of the brain through the ears and uh, allows for a very, very similar effect as though, you know, to, to if you, you put the sun in your ear. And so I try to pair morning movement with copious amounts of morning light so that I can really take advantage of the ability of that morning movement to not just enhance metabolism, and fat loss, but also its ability to regulate your circadian rhythm and allow for better sleep cycles. And then in the evening, like I mentioned, that's when I'll do something hard. And uh, there is some truth to the idea that the best workout is the workout that you're not currently doing, meaning that the body adapts pretty quickly to the demands that you place upon it. And so I am you know, typically during the course of any given year, switching up the style of workout that I'm doing for those evening workouts, anywhere between, you know, five and 10 times, meaning that right now I'm in a kettlebell phase where the majority of my evening workouts are comprised of, of kettlebell training, you know, and, and once the Spartan race season rolls around, because I still race professionally in obstacle course racing, you'll see me doing a lot more body work, a lot more hanging and pull up work, a lot more crawling a lot more carrying and a lot more running. And uh, then, you know, once, once kind of like fall rolls around, I'll typically go into some kind of like, kind of like a mass phase, right? Where I'm doing more barbell work, more dumbbell work, heavier, lower reps, uh, uh, higher weight, that type of thing. But ultimately, uh, if you were to step back and you were to identify exactly what it is that your exercise program, no matter what exercise program that you do, should target each week. In my opinion, it should be comprised of the following. A, something that increases your mitochondrial density uh, because mitochondria are so important as powerhouses of your cells and as organelles that allow you to produce ATP. We know that high levels of mitochondria are also associated with longevity Healthy mitochondria are associated with decreased risk of cancer. Taking care of your mitochondria is pretty important. And the, and the best type of exercise to increase your mitochondria are very, very short, hard efforts separated by long recovery periods. And so no matter what kind of training I'm doing during the week, I ensure that at least once a week, one of my workouts is comprised of, say, five extremely hard 30-second bursts on a bicycle separated by four minutes of recovery or a hike outside where the only rule is that five times during that hike, I need to pretend I'm running from a lion, right? For just 20 or 30 seconds. 
And so any fitness program that you do should have some component of mitochondrial density training, and that's the best way to do it. Now, when we look at things from a cardiovascular training standpoint, there are some fitness parameters that are not hit when we just do a quick, brief 20 to 30 second effort. Uh, your VO2 max, for example, which is your maximum oxygen utilization, the ability of your lungs to suck in oxygen, the ability of your, your tissues to be able to extract oxygen from the blood as it rushes past, uh, and also your ability to be able to utilize that oxygen. That's called your VO2 max. And VO2 max is, is very much correlated with fitness, and there's been some studies that have shown it to be associated with longevity. And maintenance of VO2 max is not something that you get by doing very short 20 to 30 second efforts as you would do for mitochondrial density. Instead, to increase VO2 max, you have harder efforts. Uh, we're talking like four to six minutes of duration, some form of cardiovascular work with pretty decent recovery periods, right? Like in, traditionally in VO2 max training, you would have about a one to one work to rest ratio. So we're talking about like four to six minutes of hard training followed by four to six minutes of recovery, four to six times through, right? And so, and, and again, this would just be like once a week to even once every two weeks, you would say, uh, let's, let's say uh, get on a treadmill and you would do uh, four, four minute efforts that are pretty hard, but sustainable, each separated by four minutes of recovery, four times through. All right, so VO2 max, in addition to mitochondrial density, is important to train. And then finally, from a cardiovascular standpoint, there are two other components that you'd wanna target. Number one would be your ability to be able to tolerate lactic acid, because we see lactic acid style training associated with very high levels of growth hormone, and also very high levels of fitness, and the ability to be able to maintain a good acid alkaline balance within the body. The way that you train lactic acid tolerance would be to build up copious amounts of lactic acid in the tissue. You know, uh, Rich biohackers these days use things like, uh, there's one piece of equipment out there called the Vasper, and it's like this full body exercise device you get on, you just go hard for like, it's like 15 minutes and, and that's it. And you build up copious amounts of lactic acid while, you know, they've got that thing grounded and you're wearing cold therapy and it, it's, a, it's a crazy device and it's, it's expensive, tens of thousands of dollars, I believe. But, you know, you could also, let's say, have you ever heard of a Tabata set, Greg? Yeah, I have. I've actually just seen that Vesper system as well. It's in, it's in the office of one of the people that I work with. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's funny you mentioned that because I looked at it, I'm like, oh my God, this thing's bonkers. But yeah, and Tabata sets are, are super painful and interesting. Right. So Tabata set would be a perfect example, right? So, so at least once a week, I'll make sure that I do something like Tabata set, which would be, for those of you who don't know what it is, just four minutes long. 20 seconds, very hard, 10 seconds, easy. And obviously that, that's a two to one work to rest ratio so that you're not giving your body a chance to get rid of all that lactic acid and something like that done once a week, just like presenting your body with a whole bunch of lactic acid. Some, you know, you, you might say, oh, well, that sounds like the mitochondrial training that you just talked about. That's not because the mitochondrial training, extremely long recovery periods, the lactic acid training, extremely short recovery periods. And so Having that, and then like I mentioned, uh, there's one other component for cardiovascular fitness, that would be stamina. And this is something that I think a lot of CrossFitters and you know, modern high intensity exercise, you know, minimalist exercise, get the most bang for your buck in the weight room type of exercisers kinda forget about, and that's that you, you do need to train the body how to be a fat burning machine. 
and how to go for certain periods of time without necessarily fueling and how to engage in low level endurance. So for me, that might be a day of snowboarding or it might be a two hour hike or it might be a long bike ride to the next city over or just like going and running errands on, on, my, on my bike. Something that kind of keeps my body moving for a few hours in a row, preferably without you know, face stuffing the whole time. So, so you really work on your stamina or your endurance. So we've got uh, present in any exercise program that, that's worth its salt, in my opinion, at least once a week you're, you're building your mitochondria at least once a week, you're throwing in something for the VO2 max. At least once a week, you're doing some kind of lactic acid tolerance training. And at least once a week, you're doing some kind of like a long stamina and endurance type of effort. And you could potentially, you know, for a very busy person, still get some amount of maintenance by doing each of the aforementioned, you know, protocols even once every two weeks. But you're trying to work them in. And then, of course, you know, I didn't even address strength or mobility. Obviously, mobility, you know, getting a book like Kelly Starrett's Becoming a Supple Leopard or, or Kelly Starrett's and TJ Murphy's Ready to Run book or, or any other number of different, uh, you know, in, any of, of, um, of uh, Kate, uh, I'm blanking on her name now. Uh, I've, I've had her on my podcast a few times, Katie Bowman, any of Katie Bowman's books on biomechanics, you know, just making sure you take care of mobility. That, that's another one. That's why each morning while the coffee's getting hot, like I mentioned, I do some breath work, a little bit of yoga, sometimes touch up a few body parts with the foam roller. Uh, and then from a strength standpoint, you, know, you, you have a few different types of muscle. And uh, uh, I'm a big fan of, of doing strength training that is both super slow and intense, like single sets to failure. Uh, and that would be something like, um, you know, Doug McGuff has a book called body by science where once a week, 12 to 20 minute exercise set to complete failure, you know, like a chest press, pull down, shoulder press, row, leg press, boom, that's it. Go to complete failure on each set. I've got a machine in my gym. That's basically just like an isometric training machine. Same thing. I tie it to a phone app. I go as hard as I can for one minute. As soon as my peak force drops off, boom, that's it. Done. That, that's the only set for the day. And for that one, I'll do um, chest press, pull down, uh, deadlift, squat, and shoulder press. And so some form of like super slow or isometric or extremely hard kind of heavy training. And then also some form of explosive training, right? Like I mentioned for me, it's kettlebells. So, so once a week I've got a, a pretty hard kettlebell workout sometimes twice a week. And then once a week I've got this more slow isometric style workout. And the reason I'm a fan of both moving heavyweights slow and moving lighter weights more explosively is we know that moving heavyweights slow is really good for strength, for bone density, for muscle maintenance, and even for blood pressure. Uh, but it doesn't actually give you a lot of the athleticism or even some of the longevity benefits that we see in more explosive, wiry muscle. And so that's why I'm a fan of doing both slow exercise and also explosive exercise when it comes to strength training with the slow exercise done with extremely heavy weights, low number of sets to failure and the explosive stuff kind of being, you know, it could be that you're just whatever, maybe playing tennis and basketball every week, or maybe you're like me and you're, you're swinging the kettlebells, or maybe you're doing like body weight training very explosively, but, but something like that should be worked in too. So when you step back and you look at a full exercise protocol, some of the basic rules are, Easy exercise in the morning, 
hard exercise in the evening and finish up that hard exercise at least three hours before bedtime if you can. Uh, have some carbohydrates with dinner so you have enough energy on board the next day for the exercise and for the movement and for life in general, but you're not spiking your blood sugar all day long by including carbohydrates with many of the other meals. Um, target mitochondrial density by doing short, hard efforts with long rest periods. Target VO2 max by doing, and this is probably the most difficult of, of all the scenarios, like, like four to six minute efforts with longer duration recoveries, but pretty difficult. Again, don't need to do it any more than, than once every one week to two weeks. Lactic acid tolerance training, meaning very short efforts that are hard with very short recovery periods. Some kind of stamina or endurance worked in, longer efforts where you're not eating, uh, preferably. And then finally, uh, some form of explosive strength training with lightweight and some form of extremely heavy, exhausting strength training uh, with heavyweight. Uh, and of course, the mobility. And that, that's, that would be kind of like the perfect exercise program. And it might change in terms of the modalities that you use, kettlebells, dumbbells, barbells, bicycles, swimming, running, you know, cycling, whatever. And I'm a big fan of changing modalities as you go. Uh, but ultimately, those are, those are some of the big things that, you know, when, when you ask an exercise physiologist that question, you know, those are some of the big, big areas you'd want to target. What are some of the big areas that you would want to target with nutrition Basically, like, same question, but nutrition. Because, uh, again, that's something people get really confused about. But uh, if we do it right, it's exponentially more powerful when you combine it with exercise. So what are some of the big, uh, big approaches or, or high-level principles that you have around eating? Well, I should begin by saying that, of course, there's a great deal of genetic individuality. Even what I just outlined, there are companies like DNA Fit that have done research that shows that certain people have a propensity to have a higher amount of slow twitch muscle fiber and also are what we call endurance responders, whereas others are fast twitch muscle fiber, more power responders. And if a power responder does a workout that is higher rep, lower weight as the core of their workout protocol, they actually, and they've shown this in research, see staggeringly better results compared to if they'd done higher rep, lower weight. And of course, we see vice versa with endurance responders. And that's not to say that everything I just said should be discounted and you should simply go get a DNA test and stick to that single style of training all year long. But it does mean that you know, if you, if you test your genes and you find that, let's say, you're a power responder or you find that, let's say, your endogenous antioxidant production dictates that you need longer recovery periods in between workouts and you might do better having complete rest days on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday and loading up all your workouts Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, then you, sh you should pay attention to the idea that the perfect exercise program for your neighbor may not be the perfect exercise program for you and that you might need to do more power training than your neighbor does, or you might need to do more endurance training than your neighbor does, or you might need more rest days than your neighbor does. Uh, and the same goes for food, right? I could say, well, everybody should be on a ketotic-based diet, um, but the fact is there are certain genetic SNPs that uh, make some people very uh, give them a very high propensity for things like familial hypercholesteremia, meaning their cholesterol only gets very high, but also becomes inflamed or oxidized in response to a high fat, low carbohydrate diet. 
that's just their genetics. You know, you might, you might see that in, let's say, somebody like a, like a Sub-Saharan African or Southeast Asian or someone whose ancestors may not have eaten heavily salted, high-fat foods. You know, whereas in, in Northern Europe, we find a good history of fermenting and salting and curing and higher fat and, and lower carbohydrate intake and less of like the starches and the tubers and less of the citrusy fruits and less of the things that we might see in different climates. And so paying attention to your genetics is important. Paying attention to your blood markers is also important. I have a whole article over on bedandgreenfieldfitness.com and it's called F Diets. And it goes into this idea of biochemical individuality and how you need to, to choose the diet that corresponds best to your ancestry, your genetics, and your blood work. Now, that being said, can we say that there are a few things that we would see uh, um, appropriate across most diets? Yes. For example, there's two questions that I tell everyone they should ask when they are making a choice about a meal. And that is, is this nutrient dense and is this digestible? What I mean by that, Greg, is let's, let's take uh, quinoa, for example. Is quinoa nutrient dense? I would say that it probably is nutrient dense. Yeah, it's, it's a super grain, you know, it's yeah. high in amino acids, it's high in fatty acids compared to, let's say, freaking rice. It's pretty nutrient dense, but is it digestible? I would say that in general, it is fairly digestible, yeah. Well, the, the answer would actually be, be no, it's, it's, it's not in its native state. It's, it's quinoa, and this is why a lot of people eat quinoa and be like, oh, I don't want to eat health food. I feel horrible. I got quinoa in my crap and you know, my stomach's upset. Well, the fact is quinoa is covered in a soap-like irritant called saponins. And as a matter of fact, in South American cultures, we see that when they get their quinoa, they'll, they'll, they'll rinse it and they'll soak it and they'll rinse it and they'll soak it again and leave it overnight. They'll use that water to freaking wash their clothes because it's so high in these like detergent-like molecules. But the fact is, once you've rinsed it and once you've soaked it, and maybe even once you've let it sit for a while and you've kind of let it, let, it, let it ferment and sprout a bit, quinoa becomes extremely digestible and even more nutrient dense. The same could be said for wheat, right? Like I don't do a lot of whole wheat bread, but I eat my wife's slow fermented sourdough bread because that process of slow fermentation pre-digests a lot of the gluten, lowers the glycemic index or lowers the ability of that bread to spike the blood glucose and makes that bread not only nutrient dense, but also digestible. So when a meal is set before me, I don't ask like, am I paleo or does this follow some dogmatic diet that I'm trying to follow? It's instead just is this nutrient dense and is this digestible? I mean, we could, we could say sugar too, right? Is sugar nutrient dense? Well, I would um, say probably not, but yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. unless it's from like, you know, sugar cane, right? Yeah. Where minerals and fibers, and nutrients, maybe like blackstrap molasses or raw honey or something like that. Is it digestible? Well, well, yeah. I mean, your body starts to digest sugar as soon as it freaking touches your mouth. Salivary amylase breaks this stuff down. It's in your bloodstream. I mean, you barely have to sniff the stuff before it becomes digestible. So, you know, I ask myself, is it nutrient dense and is it digestible? And then the, you know, there's a lot more I could talk about. I'm, I'm running a little low on time, but I would say one of the, one of the last things from a food standpoint, in addition to testing your body, seeing what your genetics are and what your ancestors may have eaten, asking yourself whether or not your food choice is both nutrient dense and digestible, uh, it would be to take into account probably the one single biggest determinant of longevity and health when it comes to our food choices. And that would be this concept of glycemic variability, right? Whether 
whether you're from uh, Africa or Asia or Russia or Europe or America, like we, we see this over and over again. If something constantly spikes the blood glucose or causes uh, fluctuations in blood glucose hour to hour, what is called glycemic variability, that results in inflammation, that results in oxidation of cholesterol, that results in deleterious health parameters, that results in increased risk of chronic disease. And so this concept of keeping blood sugar regulated is extremely important. That doesn't mean ketosis. What it does mean is low levels of physical activity all day long, pushing yourself away from the table when you're 80% full, chewing every bite, which actually vastly increases what's called your first phase insulin response, your ability to be able to control blood sugar, using bitters or digestifs before a meal like apple cider vinegar, cinnamon, bitter melon extract, things that, that allow you to control your blood glucose, um, including fibers with meals, including proteins with meals, including healthy fats with meals so that you're, you're always kind of like chaperoning that glucose, slowing down its release. Uh, but basically, you know, if there's one single thing you could do, and, and Rob Wolf has a good book about this called Wired to Eat, it would be to make sure sure that, you know, you, you can even have a blood glucose monitor around if you want to do this, you know, cheapo $15, $20 blood glucose monitor from the pharmacy, but see what your diet is doing to your blood glucose levels. And that would be in addition to evaluating your diet for nutrient uh, density and for digestibility and also evaluating your diet for genetic appropriateness. One of the better choices you could make when it comes to uh, your nutrition choices. Interesting. Yeah, when you were talking about quinoa there, I just had flashbacks to Bolivia, and I was actually in some of the places where they were harvesting quinoa and watched them prepare quinoa, just like you were describing. I had no clue what they were doing. Um, so that's really cool that that's, in fact, they were, they were preparing it for, uh, for actual consumption by going through that, that process that you described. That's really, really interesting. And also... Um, I did all my genetics this year and found out that I'm a power responder on exercise, which makes sense for me, my background in swimming. But I've also done Ironman recently and struggled. I did it. I'm glad I did it. But it was always hard for me, whereas now I've gone back into a bit more of the power uh, speed explosiveness training. My body's responding a lot better and a lot more efficiently. So it's interesting yeah, but, to bring all those me, things let up. Let me point out the fact that being a power responder does not mean bad at Ironman. Being a power responder means that the way you get good at Ironman is via power training. So that makes Got sense. It. Yeah, so totally. It means that it means that rather than using like a what they would call like a mathetone esque training or like a a Lydiard training where you're doing lots of long, slow aerobic work. And I know this because I'm the same way. You know, I had my greatest success in Ironman with this approach. You do lots of short height as the interval training, right? When all your friends are going out on six hour aerobic bike rides, because maybe they're endurance responders or maybe they just don't know any better. Uh, you're going out and you're doing three 20 minute, extremely intense power efforts on the bike separated by 10 seconds of rest. And you're finishing up with five 30 second bursts, right? And that's how you get ready to ride 112 miles fast. Cause you're a power responder. Yeah. Interesting. I'll totally keep that in mind. Cause I am going to get back into Ironman at some point in the future. I just wanted to take a bit of a different approach, but I noticed that you did that as well with one of the Ironmans that you did. You did it on very little training whatsoever or very a completely power-based approach, which was, which was pretty interesting in the, in the interest of your time. And I'm sensitive to, uh, to making sure that we hit our target time here. I wanted to give you a chance to tell us like, what are you up to now? Like what's big for you? What are you working on? What's the big project? What's the, uh, what's, what, what, what do you want to hit in 2018? 
Well, not an Ironman, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. I get those out of my system. You know, one of the things that I am focusing on nourishing in 2018 that I think other people may want to take to heart is balance when it comes to, um, especially in our health and fitness and biohacking and nutrition sectors, we tend to live very gang, hypercharged, macho-esque, go, go, go lifestyles and often don't tend to tap into our creative side enough, what we call our yin side, you know, an ancestral Chinese medicine or, you know, from a more Eastern or even Ayurvedic approach. And so the reason that that's important is, in my opinion, it, well, there, there's many reasons that, that not quelling your creative tendencies and not quelling that, that feminine side that, that we all have as both males and females is important. Um, basically if you, if you step back and think about it, like, and I think I ever wrote this in my book, like you don't want written on your gravestone necessarily. At least I don't think most people do. I was good at fitnessing or I was a good exerciser or, you know, I could do the most burpees or whatever. It's like the way I like to live life and then this foraging and painting and you know, doing a little bit more bow hunting versus, you know, running through the woods with spandex on, walking through the woods, holding my bow, doing it for a purpose. Um, the reason for that is because um, you don't want to get like hit by a car when you're out training for your Ironman triathlon, be in a wheelchair or be relegated to a hospital bed or God forbid, become a paraplegic at, you know, bedside bedridden the rest of your life and feel like you're completely not a human anymore because your entire life depended on your fitness or how good you looked with your shirt off or your crossfit wad time you know or or, or something completely related to physical parameters and so because of that, just about every time I make a resolution, you know, it's, it's re it really is to become a little bit more of a renaissance man to say, okay, well, if you took away everything, you know, could I still write a fiction book by, by blinking with my eyes? Or, you know, if, if, I, uh, if, if I lost my legs, could I still, like, entertain people and play guitar, right, and play music? And, and so it's that idea that, you know, for 2018 for me, and I would challenge other people about this as well to be able to do things that aren't just focused on like, whatever, you know, eating healthy and lifting weights and living a long time. Cause there's a lot more to life than that. And, uh, and I think that that really tapping into creativity or more yin side and looking at ways that we can get that, that dopamine high without necessarily, you know, strapping on the running shoes. It's, it's, it's a, it's a good way to go. I love it. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind blowing. I, I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play, that makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.